Let's hear the word of God. So our our scripture reading today is from Revelation chapter 4, verse 1 through chapter 5, verse 2. And this is found near the back on page uh, 1030 in your pew Bible. Uh, And by the way, if you don't own a Bible, uh, we'd love for you to take, uh, take that one home with you as a gift from us. So here's the word of God. The the throne room in heaven. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once, I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings of peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature, like a lion. The second living creature, like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. And by your will, they existed and were created. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Dan. And good morning uh, to each one of you. Thanks for being here this morning. And of course, we have a congregation that's also joining us uh, via online uh, and uh, they're celebrating with us as well. 
um, this morning, even if they're not here with us. So thanks. And also, if this is your first Sunday back with us physically in, in the building, we're so glad that you're here. Uh, thanks for coming back. And if this is your, happens to be your first Sunday just at Christ Community, we're really glad that you've uh, decided to come and be with us uh, this morning. And uh, before we jump into the sermon this morning, I wanted to take a moment just to pray uh, for our country right now, and obviously there's lots of things uh, happening, lots of things we could pray for, but I was just reminded in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Timothy write, or Paul writes to Timothy, first of all, I urge that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead peaceful and quiet lives godly and dignified in every way. And so I just want to pause and, and pray for our country in this moment. So Father in heaven, we are thankful uh, for our country and for uh, the fact that you have uh, allowed us and called us uh, as, as people in this moment to, to live in this time, that that's not an accident. And so we just want to pray uh, for our country in this moment. In particular, we want to pray for um, for the president and first lady, as well as everyone right now who in our country who has been affected by the coronavirus. And this is I've been going on for a long time uh, now, it seems, but we want to just pause in this moment and remember uh, all those, one, who have who've lost their lives and the, f- the family members who are grieving uh, that, that you would be near to them. For all those who, even in this moment, are uh, actively infected with the virus and, um, and fighting that, would you bring healing uh, to them? We also pray for those who are leading uh, schools and churches and businesses who have to make decisions about um, what's wise and safe as we continue to um, figure out the best way to control the pandemic as it's unfolding. Lord, we just ask for your mercy and your healing uh, in this moment for all of this. And uh, beyond that, we continue to pray too as we look ahead uh, toward the election here in November. Would you bring uh, unity and peace in our country? And that seems like such a a far, uh, almost impossible prayer. But Lord, we ask it in faith, in the name of Jesus, that you would bring uh, unity and peace in our country uh, before, during, after uh, the election. We're thankful, again, that you are the one who sits on the throne and that that is the truest truth that we know today, that whoever's in the White House, whoever's in the Senate, the Congress, whoever's the mayor, um, you are the one who sits on the throne. You are the one who is in control. And we pray to you, uh, in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And I left my notes down here, so I'm going to grab those for the sermon. <laughs> and, we'll, and we'll dive in. So, again, it's good to, good to see you. Glad that you're here this morning and uh, worshiping with us. Well, a few weeks ago, or I guess it's been about a month ago, I was at Rocky Mountain National Park. And, and first, as I was there, I was speechless And then all I could whisper was, wow. As I slowly began to catch my breath in the thin air and I just finished scrambling up the edge of a small waterfall that's the only way to access Sky Pond and and perched there at almost 11,000 feet in the heart of Rocky Mountain National Park, it actually wasn't primarily the altitude that was taking my breath away. The view was stunning. And I had begun this hike early in the morning and on my way up, you know, I began in darkness get there early enough, I I needed to start before it was even light, but I paused at a pond called The Lock as the sun was rising, which was just incredibly beautiful. But not even the beauty of that pond could prepare me for what I would see when I finally reached Sky Pond above it. 
And this is the view that uh, greeted me when I got over that waterfall and turned around. Of course, my iPhone can't really capture the, the grandeur of that moment. It falls far short. But that actually, that little pond down there was, was the lock, the first picture. So you climb up, and now you're looking down on that same pond that you saw first. And as I sat there, catching my breath, looking out over that sky, I was having an experience that could only be described as worship. Now, depending on your background, where, how you grew up, your religious, non-religious, however you, you grew up, that language of worship might stir a wide variety of images, uh, ideas in your imagination. Maybe, maybe you think of people, uh, when you think of worship, of, of bowing down to a statue. Or, or maybe if you're a certain generation of SNL uh, fan, you, uh, or you think of Wayne and, and Garth. Uh, or, or maybe you think of Buddhist monks or... Maybe someone in a mosque, Islamic prayers. And for many of us, we probably think of, of what we're doing right now, being in a church service. And, and maybe even when we hear that language of worship, in particular, think of the portion of the service where we sing, or at least where we, we used to sing together, right? In, uh, in that time of, of worship. Uh, others, you might think of an experience in nature, something like Sky Pond, seeing the beauty of God's creation. But whatever comes into your mind when you hear that word worship and think about that language of worship, the late writer David Foster Wallace, who was not a Christian, argues in his famous Kenyan College commencement address that worship is the, at the heart of everyone's life. And listen to this. Listen to what he writes. He says, in the day-to-day -day trenches, and again, he's speaking, this is a commencement address, he's speaking to college students. He says, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is no, actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships, he says. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC or Allah, be it Yahweh or a wicked mother goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some infallible set of ethical principles, is that pretty much everything else will eat you alive. And he goes on to explain, if you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, and you will feel weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect being seen as smart and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. Which is a powerful analysis. But then he makes this critical observation too. He says, look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is that they are unconscious. They are the default setting. See, we all worship. It's what we were designed to do. We all, is our default setting to be worshiping creatures, loving, desiring creatures. We have something that, that we're attracted to, that we love, that we give our worship to. It's who we are. And here in Revelation chapters 4 and 5 that Dan read for us, John, the apostle who's writing this book of Revelation, unveils what, and again, this word revelation means to uncover or unveil. And he unveils, uncovers here in these chapters what what worship really is, the most real reality of worship, and it is the only worship that won't eat you alive ultimately. 
And so as we look at this section, we're going to make three observations this morning about it and, and about how worship works in our lives generally, whether we are worshiping the lamb on the throne that we see here in Revelation chapter 4 or 5 or, or something else. But these are sort of three key truths about worship in general, and that is that worship is inspired by wonder. Uh, secondly, it's, it's fueled by rescue. And then third, it's evidenced in loyalty. So it's, it's inspired by wonder, it's, it's fueled, it's continued, it's, it's propelled by rescue, and it's evidenced in loyalty. And first we see here in chapter 4 of Revelation that worship is it's inspired by wonder, and we worship, we only worship, really what captures our imagination, our wonder. And John, again, the writer of Revelation, he certainly has an awe-inducing, jaw-dropping, wonder-inspiring experience when he steps through the door that is standing open in heaven in verse 1 there of chapter 4. He has this vision. There's, he sees this door standing open. He steps through, and then this is what he sees. When you take a look, verses 1 through 3 is that first initial glimpse of what he sees when he steps through that door. But before we read those verses again, I want you to keep two things in mind. First, John is writing in a very specific type of literary genre called apocalyptic. And when we hear the language of apocalypse, uh, that word in English usually kind of communicates the end of the world, right? You think about apocalyptic movies about the aliens or asteroids or, or just the world zombies coming to an end. But that language, when it is used in the scriptures and as a literary genre in the ancient world, is not so much about the final sort of cataclysmic moment of an ending in the world per se, but really the word apocalypsis, the Greek word, it just means to, to reveal or to uncover what is really real. It means to uncover, to pull back the curtain on what's true. So a perfect picture of this is the moment in the film The Wizard of Oz when Toto the dog pulls back the curtain, right? And you see this little person who's controlling the, the supposed great and terrible wizard. So you could say in that moment, Toto, the dog, is apocalypsing the wizard for who he really is. He's unveiling, he's pulling back the curtain on what's really true. That's what this genre of revelation is all about. And again, we have other examples of this in scripture in, in Daniel and Ezekiel, some other places. And this is a common type of, of literature in uh, the Jewish second temple period, apocalyptic literature. Again, not primarily about cataclysmic event ending the world, but unveiling what is true. So that's the first thing. Second thing is that this genre has, it has really specific kind of rules and conventions, and one of them is that it uses vivid images and metaphors and symbols to engage our imaginations, to sort of break us out of the mundane reality and to see the world differently. That's what this, this type of writing, this type of literature is designed to do. Okay, so with those things in mind, let's read verses 1 through 3 again. Revelation chapter 4, verse 1 John writes, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a, a rainbow that the appearance of emerald. And again, this is a pretty stunning picture. And one, again, if you are not used to reading apocalyptic literature from 2,000 years ago, probably seems pretty bizarre to us. But just wait, the books, I mean, in some ways, chapter four and five are, are relatively normal compared to what's coming in the rest of the book. 
it's going to get a lot more crazy. <laughs> but just because it seems bizarre and sort of implausible and weird to us as 21st century readers who have little or no experience reading this type of literature doesn't mean that we should dismiss it, right? I mean, it would be like us sending the Apostle John a copy of the Twilight series and asking him to read it and be like, John, what, like, what did you think? Like, you just wouldn't have it. Like, that kind of novel and that kind of literature just didn't even exist 2,000 years ago. He wouldn't even have like, the, the categories to make sense of it. And so before we just quickly say, well, this is, this is implausible. What, what is this dream, vision stuff happening? It's like, just because we're not used to it doesn't mean that it doesn't have something to say or it isn't speaking of true things. This is an important principle for reading the Bible in general because we have to remember while the Bible is written for us and it is God's gift to us, in the first instance, it wasn't written directly to us as 21st century English speakers in Kansas City, right? It was written to people in ancient Israel or people in the Mediterranean world. John's writing to seven, these seven churches. And so as because of that reality, written in Greek and Hebrew, written in a different culture, written at a different time, we should expect that there should be some things at points in time when we're reading the Bible that are going to be confusing or difficult to understand. But whether it is the apocalyptic vision that we get here in Revelation chapter 4 or 5, or the view from Sky Pond and Rocky Mountain National Park, we only worship what has captured our imaginations in wonder. And what captures John here is the spectacular throne room of heaven. And the language of throne occurs over and over and over again in these two chapters and throughout the book of Revelation. In fact, the language of throne is used more in this book of the Bible than in any other New Testament book. And one of the primary things that Revelation reveals, that one of the primary things that's uncovering, that it's apocalypsing, is that the triune God is on the throne and he is ruling in all reality. Despite what it might look like to us, especially in 2020, <laughs> or any other given moment or circumstances, John is showing us that God is the one who is ultimately in control. And he wants our imagination, our wonder to be captured and enthralled by that reality. Because again, you will only worship, you will only worship what you wonder at. So worship is fueled by rescue. That's what we see next. It's inspired by wonder, but what fuels and sustains worship is rescue. Worship is fueled by rescue. What do I mean by that? You see, whatever we worship, whatever we give that allegiance to, whatever we're looking toward, whether it's money or sex or power or food, we worship it because we think, we believe that this will make me okay, that this will make me happy, that this will make the sad things come untrue. That's what we're, you know, that's the, the language we're using in the title of the series, uh, everything sad, untrue. Whatever we worship, whatever we give that allegiance to, whatever we're looking to, we're thinking, I believe this thing, that this meal, that this relationship, that, that this will make the sad things come untrue for me. And everyone knows our stories and the stories of the world are full of deeply sad things. We are all longing and looking for something that will make those things come untrue, that will heal them, that will will make them right again. And yet there comes this moment, and maybe you haven't had it yet, but there will. If you, if you live long, there will come this moment when the thing that you have been looking for to say, this is the thing 
Whether consciously you said that or not, but functionally you're saying this is the thing that will make the sad things come untrue. When that thing will let you down. And when it does, you will have the same reaction that John does here in chapter 5. Because again, in in chapter 4, which Dan read for us in its entirety, he has this incredible scene of God on the throne. And and it's perhaps one of the most arresting theophanies. That's a big word for you this morning, a theophany. It's just what Bible nerds uh, call visions or appearances of God. And I love it. one scholar uh, uses how he describes it. He says, this is a symphony here in in Revelation 4 of all of the Old Testament theophanies kind of coming together. It brings together all the images of God and his throne throughout the Bible. This is the culmination of that. There's unceasing worship. And then we read chapter 5, verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was on, seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And that's where Dan stopped reading. And then verse 3 it continues, and no one, in heaven or on earth, or under the earth, was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And John continues, says, I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. John has had the sense that everything is going to be okay. All the things that are sad are finally going to come untrue. The scroll is there. This is the, the plan. It contains the plan, the hope that evil will finally be judged. The world will be rescued. There it is. Finally, the moment is coming. This is going to happen at last. then, oh no, there's no one who can open the plan. There's no one who can carry it out. And John falls apart. He's overwhelmed with weeping. And at some moment, you will have that time in your life where there will have been something you were looking to. See, this is the thing that's going to make it all right. And it will let you down. And when what you've been putting your hope in to make the sad things come true, when it, when it isn't enough, we start to fall apart. Maybe it's your, your marriage ends. Or, or your body gets sick. Maybe your addiction is discovered. You still aren't pregnant. You're still single. You lose your job, your, your child rejects you, your boyfriend breaks up with you, you don't get into the college you longed for. Your normally happy, lucky-go personality is suddenly smothered in a cloud of darkness and depression and you just, you can't even seem to get out of bed. And you find yourself like John, weeping. Because what you, you've looked to to rescue you has failed you and it, and it looks like everything is going to stay sad forever. Because I think that's what John, I think that's why John's weeping in this moment. He's afraid that everything is going to stay sad. There's no one who can open the throne. And John is weeping. He's completely falling apart. And then verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Hope is not lost the promised king, the great descendant of David, he 
the conquering lion is here. He can open the scroll. He can rescue. He can open the scroll. He can carry out the plan. That is what John hears. This is what he expects to see, a fierce lion. That's what he hears and he expects to see, but this is what he sees instead. A lamb that is slain, verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And I went and looked and, and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. John hears that there's going to be a lion, but what he sees is a lamb. The slain lamb is the conquering lion. Jesus, the lamb who is slain, he can open the scroll. He can do it. Jesus, the king who was dead for three days in the tomb, when everyone wept but rose again to wipe away every tear, he has conquered and he can rescue. He can make everything sad come untrue. But he doesn't do it with raw power. He is the conquering lion because he is the suffering lamb. And listen to what Paul Spilsbury writes in his fantastic little book called The Throne, the Lamb, and the Dragon. And if you only read one other thing on Revelation during this series, if you kind of want to dive in, I'd encourage you to read this book. It's very short, very readable. It's really good. He writes this. The slaughtered lamb of God, or the slaughtered lamb is God's way of showing contempt for the power of the world. When God determines to establish his kingdom, he doesn't do it as the Romans did with invading armies and intimidation. Rather, he does it through the humiliating death of Jesus. Which means that if you look to Jesus as the one to rescue you, he won't eat you alive. Like everything else we try to get rescue from, he is the one who has died for you. Because remember, whatever we worship, money, sex, power, food, we worship it because we think it will make the sad things come untrue. We think it will make us okay. But as David Foster Wallace points out, those things we worship like that will end up eating us alive. They will end up destroying us. Only the lamb, only the lamb who is slain can rescue you from worshiping what will destroy you. And rather than destroy rather than Jesus being destroyed, or rather than us being destroyed, Jesus is destroyed in our place. He receives the consequences, the wrath, the disorder that we deserve because of our rebellion and when we decided to worship the created things rather than God who made them. He let evil and sin destroy him so that he can be the one to rescue you. And when you see that, when you see the innocent lamb who was slain for your sin, how can you not But join in with the elders and the living creatures and the angels and sing, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Jesus, the slain lamb, gave his life to you. He's the only one, he's the only one who would ever do that. And now he, because of that, he's the one who you can give yourself holy to because he won't eat you alive. He was the one who can come and say, I've forgiven your sin. You won't be destroyed. There is no condemnation. You are giving your worship to something this morning. We all are. David Foster Wallace said it so clearly at the beginning. 
something deep down that you think will rescue you. But the question is, is that thing setting you free or is it enslaving you? Does it, does it make you kinder and more focused on others or is it turning your, you in on yourself? Is it prompting you to love those who oppose you and are different from you? Or is it making you more angry and bitter? We give our worship to what we believe will rescue us, what we believe will make the sad things come untrue. We give ourselves wholly to that thing. We give it our allegiance and our loyalty. And that's what we see next here, is that worship is ultimately expressed in loyalty. Worship begins in awe, but it, it quickly fades if whoever or whatever is it we are in awe of can't make the sad things untrue. This is the progression, right? If something captures our imag- imagination and we say, wow, that's amazing. But if it, if it can't deliver on a promise to, to rescue us, then, then it, it quickly fades. But once we get a sense that something is beautiful and we believe that it can make the sad things untrue, then we give it our allegiance and our loyalty, right? Because the ultimate express- expression of worship is allegiance, is loyalty, right? You, you, can't, you can't worship the chiefs and then still root for the patriots on some Sundays, right? You can't do it halfway. And this is actually why political movements and parties and personalities so easily become idols, right? Because they, what politics is part of what it does is it presents a compelling vision of what could be. This is what the, if you elect me or my party, this is what the future will be like. It prevents, uh, pre- presents a, a compelling vision of what could be a, a promise of rescue. We're going to solve these problems. This is going to get fixed. The sad things are going to come untrue. And then there's a demand for, for allegiance, right? And this is true on the right and the left, Republicans, Democrats, Greens, Libertarians. This is the pattern that, that they all follow. But as Christians, we follow the slain lamb. We bear witness to a different sort of power, a different kingdom. We were redeemed by the blood of the lamb from every tongue and tribe and nation and people and language, not so that we could give our ultimate allegiance to Russia or Romania, China or Chad, the United States or the United Arab Emirates. We were redeemed for God and our loyalty and allegiance is to him. Listen to verses 5 through 10, chapter 5, or excuse me, let's begin in verse 8. And when he be the lamb had taken the scroll the 24 uh, the four elders and the 24 the four creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb each holding a harp and a golden bowl full of incense which are the prayers of the saints and they sang a new song saying worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and listen to this by your blood you ransomed a people for god from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made the kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Jesus was slain. He gave his blood for what? To redeem a people for God. And Spilsbury puts it this way, in worship we rightfully acknowledge the awesomeness of God and our total dependence on him. But worship is expressed in more than just songs or prayers. It is expressed in loyalty. To worship God means to follow the Lamb. It means to give allegiance to Him in the great battle with the dragon. We are all in danger of worshiping, of giving our allegiance to Jesus plus. Jesus plus financial security. Jesus plus good food and drinks. Jesus plus the option to to date or sleep with whoever I want, whenever I want. Jesus plus success in my work. Jesus plus always equals 
nothing. But Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And when you give your allegiance fully, exclusively to him, you find security greater than money could ever buy. You find satisfaction and comfort comfort deeper than any meal or cocktail could give you. You find intimacy and being known closer and more enduring than any relationship could ever offer. You find and enjoy an affirmation of your worth and value that no career or boss or achievement could ever bestow. So as we wrap up here, what's, what's the question that we end with? So what's next? How do we respond to this, this centering vision of the lamb on the throne? Well, there can only be one response, and that is to join the amen. To say amen is to agree with what is said, to confirm its truthfulness and goodness. When, when you say Patrick Mahomes is the best quarterback in the NFL, and I say amen, I'm agreeing with, affirming, joining with you in that statement of truth. And that's the crescendo to which the symphony of theophanies builds in verses 13 and 14. Verse 13, And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all of them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. O Christ community, Would our whole lives, everything you do, everything we do and say and think as the church gathered and scattered in Kansas City across the globe be an amen to the Lamb who was slain on the throne? Would we work in such a way and go to school in such a way, exercise our sexuality in such a way, eat and drink and celebrate and fast and feast in such a way that it only makes sense if a slain Lamb is on the throne ruling heaven and bringing his kingdom to bear? Friends, every part of your life should be speaking, sometimes whispering, sometimes shouting, amen to the Lamb who is on the throne.